0: There are so many ways you can support HUG. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunighttheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support.
1: To try to figure out where to put our resources to have the biggest impact and to most quickly accelerate technology that's promising to as many people as possible that's the journey that we're on
0: welcome to heart to heart with anna i am anna jaworski and the host of heart to heart with anna i'm also the mother to an adult with a single ventricle heart who is now 27 years old my child is my inspiration and the reason i am the host of your program I'm very excited about today's show to feature a former guest who talked to us about stem cell therapies and research in season nine. Today's show is entitled The Use of Stem Cells in Treatment for Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, or HLHS. Dr. Timothy Nelson is the director of the Todd and Karen Wanick Family Program for HLHS at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Nelson's research work is focused on cardiovascular regeneration using bioengineered stem cells to improve the ability to discover, diagnose, and ultimately treat mechanisms of degenerative diseases. As director of the program, Dr. Nelson and his team are specifically interested in the cause of HLHS and finding ways to delay and prevent heart failure for individuals with HLHS. To better understand and treat this congenital heart disease, the program has taken a multifaceted approach that includes research into stem cells, genetics, imaging tools, and the creation of a biorepository. The program has launched clinical trials using autologous stem cells, also known as stem cells collected from an individual's own body. In June 2020, HeartWorks was created to accelerate and expand the product development undertaken by the program at the Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dr. Nelson.
1: Hey, Anna, it's great to be with you again today. Thank you for the invitation.
0: I am so excited to have you with me because we have a lot to talk about. The last time you were on a program, we talked about the research project you were conducting on children with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, or HLHS. And the first season of episode nine featured Jennifer Goodman, whose son received stem cells from umbilical cord blood. It was so exciting to have you come on the program at the end of the season to tell us more about your research. So can you tell us how that project is doing now?
1: Yeah, it's great to be back and give you the update on the progress we're making. And it's hard to even remember back to those days of when we started. So much has changed, as we'll talk about today. But in the terms of that particular project, we have moved it past phase one clinical trials and we're now completing a phase 2B clinical trial. What that means is we will have treated 50 patients and we will have recruited 50 control patients In the coming weeks at this point and close out a study that perhaps is going to be the largest study in the world focused on hypoplastic left heart and stem cell therapy. It's only 50 treated and 50 controls, but that's a big sample size for this world of congenital heart disease. And it's been the Pathfinder clinical trial for us that has now launched many other trials that we're working on as well. So we're excited to close that phase two study out and In the coming months, we will be making a determination whether we go on to a larger phase three study to show and establish full clinical efficacy on that product. So we're encouraged with what we've seen so far, but obviously we have to analyze the data and that's what our focus will be on the coming couple of months.
0: That is just so exciting to me. And I've talked to some other doctors at other facilities who have also started doing some stem cell research. Do you think this will become a multi-institutional project at some point?
1: Well, we do. We actually believe that stem cells regenerative medicine is a tool in the toolkit that can change the standard of care for congenital heart disease. As you all know, HLHS is an example of some of the most severe congenital heart disease, but in many conditions, as we'll talk about as we go forward today, having a bigger, stronger heart and using stem cells, regenerative techniques to strengthen the heart muscle, we think that should and will become part of standard of care, but we obviously have to collect the data and establish that in a robust scientific way for that to happen.
0: Right. Do you have any results that you can talk about yet?
1: We have published the phase one study and the results of that were obviously a safety and feasibility study, which established the ability to do this, to do the cell collection, processing, and surgical delivery on top of the standard of care surgeries that single ventricle kids go through. So we've published that and the results of that is too small to say if this is going to benefit kids in the long run, if the outcomes will be better. But we did have some signals that encouraged us with better ejection fractions at the immediate post-operative time. But you never know if this is just sample variation or if this is really a true signal for the product. So we're cautiously optimistic and we recognize that we have to increase the number of participants that we're able to collect data on to be able to definitively prove the benefit
0: Right. It's hard to overgeneralize when you have such a small population, but it's exciting to see.
1: Yeah. And the other way that you do that is we have another parallel team that works within our group that focuses on preclinical studies. And as much effort as we put into the clinical trials, we have a similar effort in preclinical model systems where we test and continue to refine these products. And there we can be much more mechanistic focused on how these products work. There's some signals there that are very encouraging that this product is doing some remarkable things of improving the strength of the heart. And those studies are obviously more easily done in a preclinical setting than what we would be able to do in a clinical setting. So it's both of those things that side by side allows us to continue to advance this field.
0: Right. So when you say a preclinical setting, does that mean in a setting where you're using animals or is it just all theoretical and stuff that you would see on a computer, but not actually in a human being?
1: Yeah, good question. So the FDA requires us to have preclinical model systems before we would test it in a clinical patient. And so those model systems are generally small animals and large animals. And so depending on the product, we will use many different preclinical or animal model systems to be compliant with the regulations of the FDA. And that's where we can do more mechanistic studies and really get better insight on how the stem cell products are building and strengthening the myocardium.
0: Yeah, this whole experience of dealing with stem cells is almost like magic. (laughs) It's not something that most human beings like me, most lay people, we're not going to get a chance to see this. And it seems kind of magical that you can take somebody who has a low ejection fraction and insert umbilical cord blood or I guess that's what you do. I've seen the expression seeding it. Can you explain what that means?
1: Yeah. So we like to use the analogy of this magical field of regenerative medicine, which is a little bit nebulous and it sounds too good to be true at some level, right? And so Mm. we try to break it down into fertilizers and seeds. So there are products like umbilical cord blood that can be processed and really functions as a fertilizer. When you put those cells into the myocardium, the umbilical cord blood itself does not create new heart muscle, but it acts as a fertilizer to allow the infant's heart to grow bigger, better, and stronger. And in preclinical model systems, we can definitively show this, that there is an increase in heart growth of the myocardium when these fertilizers are added And so cord blood and bone marrow derived cells are good examples of what we call fertilizers that we can make the heart grow bigger and stronger. And like any fertilizer, it might be true that repeat dosing and repeat utilization of that could have a bigger bang for the buck. On the other hand, there's other cells that we also make called bioengineered cells that are more like seeds. And in that case, they actually grow into heart muscle. So we are now scaled and producing cells that are beating, contracting heart muscles in the lab that are genetically identical to the patient we started from. So we start from a piece of skin and make a bioengineered beating heart muscle in the lab. And we're on the cusp of uh, submitting that to the FDA for permission for another clinical trial that we can talk about. So fertilizers and seeds are analogy to help people understand that this magical field of regenerative medicine really distills down to some key fundamental scientific building blocks of fertilizers and seeds. And ultimately, we want to have a combination of these to make everybody's heart stronger because we all believe that a stronger heart muscle will lead to better outcomes for children with single ventricle heart disease.
0: Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective.
2: please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna.
0: Dr. Nelson, before the break, we were starting to learn about how stem cells are being used to treat children or to treat infants, and that's what the show was about in season nine. But I know that there's also a clinical trial that you're doing for adults with HLHS. So can you tell us a little bit about that research and how that process might be different for adults versus what you're doing with infants?
1: Yeah, thank you. Since we've talked, we recognize that we wanna develop products that can be tested and validated for all ages and all conditions of congenital heart disease. And therefore, many people don't have autologous cord blood collected at birth. And so we had to also think about what other cell types could have a similar function. Bone marrow has been tested in adult ischemic heart disease and in many clinical trials for heart regeneration. And what we've learned in those studies over a decade of research from our colleagues is that the younger the patient, the more potential benefit these bone marrow derived cells can have. And so we launched a clinical trial using autologous bone marrow for patients with single ventricle heart disease with a reduced ejection fraction. So individuals that had subpar or slightly abnormal heart function that were medically optimized with medical treatments with their medications for at least a period of time before it and then we would collect the cells, harvest them, and deliver them into the coronary circulation in similar ways that have been done in prior studies for adults with ischemic heart disease. And that was just a 10-patient safety study. We've completed that. That's under review to be published right now. And we were surprised mostly that we were able to feasibly do this in all 10 of the patients that we aimed to do it which there's some technical challenges there to be able to do this but we were able to accomplish that get it delivered and we had some encouraging signs with three patients out of the 10 that did have a quite remarkable improvement of heart function again whether that was directly related to the cells or not we need larger sample size to be confident in that so that's where we're at and we're currently trying to build the resources and the partnerships to be able to scale that into a larger study
0: Well, I happen to have spoken with one of the patients (laughs) on Facebook, and he's actually going to be coming on my program later to talk about it. It's amazing. You could take somebody who might actually only have the option of transplant and with this process, strengthen their heart so that they could still use their own heart. Isn't that true?
1: So that's exactly right. I mean, from the beginning, we've had the dream that could we make transplant go from sometime in the future to never in the future, right? Could we delay and prevent transplant by building and strengthening the heart that our individuals have today? No matter how good or bad that their heart is, everybody wants to keep their heart. And sure. if we can make that stronger and keep their heart, that makes it better for everybody. And, and we do believe That the science is ready to be able to do this. It just takes the clinical experience and the clinical data and the iterative improvements on to be able to make that vision a reality. And and we're well on our way to working through those processes because the vision should be something that compels and motivates us all to try to get there, because the need is so great.
0: The need is so great. So have you noticed a huge difference between the regenerative process of stem cells from cord blood versus stem cells from bone marrow?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. We've looked at it. We've tried to compare. We do know that there's differences between the cell types. Are those differences significant to the point that one is far superior than the other? We're not 100% confident. It's an academic debate at this point. And at some level, we pragmatically want to use what's available to us Cord blood is a lot easier and safer to collect for an infant than bone marrow. And obviously bone marrow is the only option for some adults. So from a pragmatic standpoint, we're trying to learn from both of those cell types to ultimately make the best product and learn from it. But we recognize that both of these products have its limitations, that the fertilizers are not going to build a new heart if you don't have the irrigation the fertile soil and the seeds to grow new heart muscle. So because of that, we're probably moving disproportionate amount of our effort into the bioengineered, which is really a game changing technology where those cells actually do create beating heart muscle. And anybody that's interested in that, we do a live tours in our lab and we can bring through a zoom format Anybody that wants to come see for themselves these cells in action and how we make them because it's hard to believe this until you see it for yourself. But when you look under the microscope and see the cultures of beating heart muscles that were originated from a skin biopsy from an individual patient, you then can start imagining what we imagine that these seeds can grow heart muscle. And that really should be the game-changing technology that allows us to go beyond the limitations of fertilizers.
0: Yeah, it's just amazing to me. This study has been going on since 2015, which is just amazing to me because I remember when you were first getting started and I was so excited and it really feels like it was just yesterday, Dr. Nelson. What sort of effects have you seen so far or what have your patients been reporting to you?
1: Yeah, so from the cord blood infant study, we were obviously following those patients for a long time. The study is actually a four-year follow-up So we're going to continue to follow them and we have not followed all of those patients for four years. So we're looking for standard things like echo, cardiac function, medications that they take, things like that to see if we can see an improvement of their overall outcome. The adult study with bone marrow, we again, follow them with echoes and MRIs and are reporting more of the arrhythmias and heart function in those patients. The most specific thing that we know today that we didn't know in 2015 is in our animal models that shows that we can actually grow heart muscle and the heart can regenerate when you are younger. Let's say younger is defined by less than 20 years of age, less than 10 is better, less than three is even better. And we can show mechanistically that the heart muscle does grow and divide and proliferate with these fertilizers. So those are some of the things that we've learned. It does take time to follow patients long-term and to be very conservative in our interpretation because we don't want to miss any safety concerns with these products and make things worse. So we move as fast as we can to be as safe as we can.
0: So is there any concern that there might be too much growth?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I get that question a lot. What happens if you grow it too much? And anybody that has a congenital heart defect known as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy has a clinical situation where too much heart muscle in the wrong spot can be damaging. We're watching for that. We think that that would be unlikely with what we see at this point. We're talking much more incremental growth than what that pathological Growth would be. But that's definitely something that we and the FDA and regulatory bodies are going to be watching carefully. But we don't have any reason to believe that that will be an outcome of what we're doing currently.
0: Yeah, from what I have seen, and I am following you as closely as a layperson can, (laughs) is that the people that you're choosing for your study have hearts that are pretty weak and really. Need the boost, so it's unlikely that it will happen. Is that true?
1: Yeah, that's right. We pick carefully the patient populations to see the efficacy and the effect of our products and to do it with the guidance of the FDA so that we're picking the right patient population to move these technologies forward. Ultimately, as things get proven, and we've treated over 150 patients across all of our protocols you start getting more confidence after 150 patients than you do after five patients that the safety profile is is indeed safe. And with that increased confidence, then you start thinking how do we use these products in a more preventative way? How do we use them in healthier patients that are doing well today with the goal to preserve that? And again, that's a really long-term study, right? Because we would be putting cells into a seemingly normal heart with the goal that that person would maintain normal heart function for 10, 20, 30 years. So those are extremely expensive, time-consuming studies that we have to think about who's the right funder to be able to do those types of studies. And all of that is, is part of the dialogue that our team embraces on a daily, weekly basis to try to figure out where to put our resources to have the biggest impact and to most quickly accelerate Technology that's promising to as many people as possible. That's the journey that we're on.
0: Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, Dr. Nelson, before the break, we were talking about the clinical trials that you're conducting with children and adults with HLHS, and they have an ejection fraction of 40% or less. On the clinicaltrials.gov website, it stated that this was the phase one of this study, but when you talked at the beginning of the show, you said you're already in phase two and looking into phase three. Can you explain to us what those different phases encompass?
1: Yeah. So phase one study is typically a safety feasibility of your product, just to make sure that it's safe and feasible to do. A phase two then is starting to look at the efficacy signals or the outcomes, the improvement at an individual level. And then a phase three would be a lockdown final protocol where these are the measures that we expect to improve when we do it in perhaps a double-blinded, randomized fashion to be able to ultimately have the evidence for the FDA to approve a product. And so those phase one, phase two, phase three is a very standard process that we go through to make sure that we're safe, advancing the most promising technology to the most people possible. And so the cord blood is at phase two. The bone marrow for the adults is Being planned for a phase two. So that's where those two products are. And our bioengineered product, the beating autologous heart muscle, we're aiming to submit to the FDA for the first clinical trial in June of 2022 to the FDA. So that would be a a phase one study on the bioengineered cells that we haven't secured yet, but that's definitely what we're working towards.
0: It's just amazing to me how far you have come in a little over six years. The fact that you started with the core blood and then you worked with the bone marrow too, and now you're doing these bioengineered cells. When you first started this project, did you really have this vision that you would be moving from one product to another like this? Yeah,
1: it's a great question. To, to be completely transparent, we had the vision of starting a clinical trial and, and getting stem cells, cord blood at the time, into patients. And that was really our focal plane. And we've been able to, with the resources of the Wanick family, with the support of the Mayo Clinic, and now the support of 11 institutions across the consortium nationwide, we've been able to build a world-class team that's unlike any other. So the growth of what we're doing is a function of the trust and quality of the partners that we've been able to build alongside of us. And so it's really taken on a much bigger focus today than what we had originally because of the partners that we've been able to rely on.
0: Yeah, it feels like it's grown a life of its own.
1: It has, and I think success brings success. And I think the success that we've had is a commitment to a vision, a confidence that we're going to do it the right way and not cut corners and work with the FDA and be committed to the long-term outcomes of congenital heart disease. We need to build a community that's much bigger than one investigator and much bigger than one institution and really find a way that we can galvanize a community across North America. And the purpose of this community is to conduct clinical trials and to get ideas out of the lab and get them through the regulatory process. So we have new options to treat the future generations and to treat the people with congenital heart disease today. To do that as rapidly as possible requires execution on clinical trials at a scope and scale that one single academic institution will never be able to do on their own.
0: Exactly. And is that how HeartWorks came to be?
1: Yeah. So in 2020, we launched HeartWorks, which is a nonprofit private foundation that is designed to be intentionally built to support this multi-institution collaboration that we have called the HLHS Consortium. Most investigators, most scientists, most companies will all acknowledge that one of the major problems of congenital heart disease is it's a small market. There's one in a hundred, which is really important to all of us. But the reality is we have always had a fundamental problem with developing products for this community because there's not a large enough community to justify the for-profit sector to fully invest in it. And that's been the fundamental reason why Heartworks was created as a nonprofit. To say, we think we can band together the community, leverage the assets and the teams that we have in place to be able together develop products at a scope and scale that will be successful and do it in a way that we can get FDA approval and be able to provide those new therapies that are approved to all of our consortium members at a price point that we all can afford and we can all sustain what we're doing. So It's a mission-based approach, and it's designed to address the limitations that we've all faced in the community for decades.
0: To that point, you have an event coming up, and I'm super excited because my husband and I will actually be able to take part in this event, which is happening on February 3rd, 2022, even though I'll be in Texas and you'll be in Minnesota. So can you tell us about the HeartWorks virtual dinner event and how they can be part of it?
1: Super excited about this. Thanks for asking, Anna. We need to celebrate what this community is capable of, what this community has done collaboratively over the last five to six years and celebrate where we're capable of going in the next couple of years. So we have some amazing, talented people on our team. Huge thanks to Kala, who inspired this vision originally to have a virtual dinner And to bring people together in the COVID era of the virtual world we live in and have a celebration where we can have a meal together. And so our sponsors, first and foremost, Tom and Bev Porter. Tom has been a personal coach and mentor of mine for many years on our external advisory committee. He has a vineyard in Napa called Porter Family Vineyard. And they have specially bottled a wine with a HeartWorks label on it. And we are using that wine as part of this dinner event. And then another special partner that has been with us literally from the beginning, Karen, is the owner of an aquaponics facility that raises farm-raised Atlantic salmon. And the salmon that her facility produces is extremely heart-healthy. And we're extremely proud to partner with her. Salmon flays are going to be shipped along with their greens, in a box to your home. And we're going to have a meal and wine for two in your home, wherever you are in the United States. We have some celebrity guests. We've got Greg Olson, prior tight end, and now NFL commentator on, on Fox Sports. He, as most of you know, has a son, TJ, that has gone through this journey. And he's going to be our celebrity host for the evening. And then oh my we have gosh, Ethan. that
0: would be so cool
1: it be amazing.
0: I didn't realize that when I signed up for this. I just was so supportive of your idea. As soon as I found out, I said, sign me up. But I had no idea that we would be having this guest on. That's awesome.
1: We have Ethan Bortnick, who will be joining us, who uh, his brother Nathan has HLHS. And he is a up-and-coming musician. He's been a professional musician since age six, I believe. So he's going to perform a couple songs for us. And then we've got some amazing giveaway gifts too that we'll keep as a surprise for the evening, but be present to win type of prizes we're super (laughs) excited about. It's just going to be a fun event. It may be the largest virtual event for the congenital heart community ever. We currently have over 371 registrations for meals of two. So we might have over 600 people join us that evening. And maybe some of your followers will want to join. We won't be able to send them the food and wine at this point, but we are opening it up for anybody to be able to join us and see the celebration of what we're working collaboratively towards.
0: I was so excited to see this because we're going to actually be preparing a meal together sitting down and enjoying food together. So we'll be in communion with each other and then sharing entertainment. I've never seen an event like this before, Dr. Nelson. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, we're super excited. It's a little bit nerve wracking to try to pull this off with a technology platform and do everything that you just said, which is exactly right. We're going to cook together. We're going to eat together and we're going to celebrate together. But whatever happens with the technology and however it plays out, I know it's going to be a memorable night. And I should also say we've got a chef that will be guiding us through the meal prep, who he himself has congenital heart disease. So it's just really remarkable to see. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Wow, even the chef
0: has a heart defect.
1: Correct. So you don't even have to know how to cook. We'll walk you through every step of the process.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love salmon too. So great choice. It's a heart healthy dish that we'll be preparing together and just so much fun. Before we started recording, Dr. Nelson, you said that perhaps we'll even be able to have the ingredients available ahead of time. So other people who haven't been able to be part of this could still be cooking with your chef. Is that something that we'll be able to make happen?
1: Yeah, we will get that information to you and share it with everybody going out today because we've realized that we've got a limitation of shipping the food and wine to everybody, but we don't want to limit the people that can participate. So we've put the ingredients list together, the instructions together. And so yes, we'll make this available to anybody that can join us if they're interested and they can still participate with the meal prep. They just might have to go buy the salmon themselves and get a bottle of wine to join the party. (laughs) But I think this would be a great way to increase the number of people and not exclude anybody at the last minute.
0: So this could potentially be an international event.
1: It is. We actually do have people from Canada joining us. We have people joining from all of our consortium member sites. And so the 11 children's hospitals that work with us, including Sick Kids in Toronto, makes this an international event. And we have families around the globe that are following us and connecting. And the time delays across the Atlantic will prevent some from joining us, but it's definitely an international event.
0: Dr. Nelson, I discovered that you set a goal of raising a million dollars for the research. I know that some of the money is coming from the dinners that people purchased, but you still have a way to go to reach your goal. Can you tell my listeners how they can contribute to your event?
1: The million dollar goal is a huge goal. It's a massive goal for us, but we recognize that for us to do the massive work, we need to set an expectation across ourselves and the community that we can do this collaboratively. And so our million dollar goal is really meant to be an aggregation of small donations together. And imagine when we hit that, we can launch a new clinical trial with the team we have and the infrastructure we have, a new as a donor of $10, $50, $5,000 will be part of the reason why we can do a new clinical trial. So we will be able at the dinner, accept donations and donations throughout the year, because we do believe that our community is strong. And when you give people the tools to see the cure through clinical trials, it's very motivating for all of us to be part of that.
0: Absolutely. And there are 2 million adults with congenital heart disease in our country alone. So that would be 50 cents a person.
1: That's a great way of thinking about it. And we would love to be able to have this conversation with all 2 million of them, because we do believe that this community is strong. And if you know somebody, if you are somebody, or if you remember somebody, with CHD. I can't imagine not being motivated by the progress that this team can make together.
0: I agree a hundred percent. This is so exciting. A million dollars is a lot of money, but when it comes to science and clinical trials, it takes a lot of money to make things happen.
1: It does. But together, I think that investing in the right team, a million dollars can move mountains in terms of what we can do together. So that's why we set the bold goal. And that's why we're committed to seeing how fast we can get to that goal so we can launch the next clinical trial that we're dreaming about.
0: Thank you so much for sharing this and for doing what you can to not just treat children with HLHS, but to actually work to finding a cure. I think all of us are indebted to you to have that vision. I would just love to know that my granddaughter won't have to worry about possibly having a child with a heart defect and that our future generations won't have to deal with the same hospitalizations and multiple procedures that our children have had to go through. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Nelson.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. And it's a pleasure to be part of a community that's so committed and dedicated to making that vision uh, reality as quick as possible. So we're in it for the long run and our exit strategy and everything we do is a cure. So that's what motivates us every day is kids and people with congenital heart disease.
0: Well, this has been exciting, but friends, it doesn't stop here. Join us on February 3rd. I can't wait to see who the chef is going to be and to listen to Ethan Bortnick we I'll be able to hear him together. And that is just so joyful. We'll be eating together. We'll be laughing together and we'll be learning too. Won't you even be teaching us a little bit about the research that you're doing?
1: We'll spend a bit of time talking about what we're doing for sure and, and where our future goals are. So it's going to be a jam-packed 90 minutes, but it will be a treat to be with
0: everybody. That is fantastic. Thanks again. That does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today, my friends. If you've enjoyed this program, take a moment to visit our Patreon page. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash heart to heart. And remember, my friends, you are not alone.
2: Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time.